0: Good morning again. Um, If you want to turn with me to Acts chapter 8, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8 in the book of Acts. We've been going through the book of Acts and we've been trying to go through it really and understand what is this book about. There's many different theories that it's merely a debate book, right, to argue about You know, who should be baptized or what's the best mission strategy or all these sorts of things or even um, just merely historical events. Right. Peter did this. Paul did that here, there, A, B, on and on. But we've tried to step back and see this not just as the events of the apostles, but really Christ from heaven acting through his appointed apostles building his church by the outpouring of the spirit and bringing people in. And so last week we looked at a lot of verses. We looked at over 66 verses, I think. <laughs> and we looked at the story of Stephen who was one of the deacons in in Acts chapter 6. He was a deacon and the religious leaders of the day did not like this message of Christ and so We see this long story that Peter tells of the history of Israel, all these things, but he's eventually stoned and killed for this message. He's the first Christian martyr. And so we've seen the climax of Christian persecution happen with the stoning death of Stephen. And we see Saul there, um, who will later on be the apostle Paul, but we see Saul there approve of this stoning. And so our verses sort of pick up there. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. I'll pray for us, and then we'll look at the text. So if you'll follow along with me. This is the word of the Lord. So this is after Stephen's stoning. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowd with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Do you pray with me? Lord, we thank You for the reading of Your Word this morning. We pray that You would bless it, that we would see the great work of Christ from heaven, sending His Spirit, preaching the Gospel, building His church, and that we'll see that even persecution and tribulation will not keep this message... um, in a box, but it will go out to the ends of the earth as it is doing even now. Help us to trust in this gospel and in Christ alone this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So like I said, we've been going through the book of Acts, right? And maybe you haven't noticed it or not, but it starts in Jerusalem, right? Pentecost happens in Jerusalem. The first seven chapters have been all in Jerusalem. We've seen the apostles proclaim Christ. We've seen them persecuted. We've seen them proclaim persecuted. Back and forth it goes. And this climactic event in chapter 7 is where we see this first death, the bloodshed of Stephen, and he is killed and martyred. And so now we're going to see this gospel go out. This is sort of the ripple effect. If you throw a rock into a pond, what happens? It ripples out, right? And so we're going to see the spread of this message through the persecution, and in spite of this persecution. So, in chapter 8, we see this gospel go out to other places, namely Samaria. So we'll look at two things this morning. We'll look at the church suffering in verses 1 through 3, and we'll look at the church spreading in verses 4 through 8. So pretty straightforward. So first, the church suffering. This is both internally and externally. Internally, if you look there in verse three or verse two, it said they made great lamentation. So, we kind of have to enter their mindset, right? This was their friend. Stephen was not just a person in the group, he was a deacon, he was a friend of theirs. If you read um, earlier in chapter seven, he was meek and mild and lowly, said he had a face like an angel. And so, just imagine. A good friend of yours being stoned to death for this proclamation of the gospel. It's pretty jarring. And so we see here that the um, people in the church are making great lamentation. And they eventually bury Stephen. And uh, this is a sign of respect to him. And just a really, uh, you know, a great sign of respect to Stephen. And so we can see that in this time of sadness, they are gathering together and lamenting over the death of their friend, really. So there's suffering not only internally, but there's also suffering externally. And so we see there in verse 1, it said, There arose on that day a great persecution. So not just great lamentation, but great persecution. And so I was thinking about it. It says, this persecution arose. I thought of it kind of like, you know, what do they say about sharks? When there's blood in the water, one drop, they all come to it. That's sort of the picture that I was seeing is, There's one act of persecution, Stephen is killed, and now everyone is being persecuted. There's this arising of persecution in Jerusalem at that time. So this sort of mob mentality, one person is killed, and so they all start to be persecuted. And the sort of spearhead of this is Saul. We read that he not only approved of this execution, but he goes about ravaging the church. So this is Saul, a religious leader of the day, a Pharisee, who later becomes... The Apostle Paul will read of his conversion in chapter 9. I won't get there yet. but So Saul is ravaging the church, going from house to house, dragging men and women out of their homes, persecuting the church. We read in places like Galatians 1 where he says he was trying to snuff this out. He was trying to end this church. These people that were proclaiming Christ and his resurrection, Paul did not like this. Or Saul, rather. So we see even despite this suffering internally and externally, the gospel goes out. And we read that in verses 4 through 8. We see this persecution lead to proclamation. So there's been persecution in Jerusalem, but this does not stop in Jerusalem. The people are scattered, it says, in verse 4. But they are also, they're not just scattered like sheep without a shepherd. It's kind of like um, the picture of a fire. And you try to stomp the fire out. You try to stomp the embers out. But what happens? The embers just spread. (laughs) And small fires start everywhere. And so that's sort of the picture here, is that even though there's persecution, they're trying to stomp this fire of the gospel and the church out. But in doing that, they're actually spreading the fire. (laughs) The fire of the gospel of the church. So it says they went about preaching the word. So this persecution ends up leading to proclamation. It does the very thing they didn't want it to do. They wanted to stop it. It ends up starting more things. And we see in verse 5 that it is Philip that is sort of at the forefront of this, that it says he went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. He proclaimed to them the Christ. So what is Philip proclaiming here? What is this message? What is it? In verse 4, we see it is the preaching of the word. And in verse 5, we see it is proclaiming Christ. So who was Philip? Like we said, Stephen was one of the seven deacons selected in Acts 6, Philip is also a deacon. So there was an Apostle Philip, that's not to be confused with the Deacon Philip. If you look back at chapter 6, Philip was a deacon of the church. So. He was one of those who was commissioned by the apostles. Their hands were laid on him. He was given these special gifts to go and confirm the message of the gospel. And we see him do these um, signs at the latter part of our passage this morning. We see him um, heal people. The lame are made well. Demons are cast out. And we call these the signs of the, the apostles. They are confirming the message that Jesus is the Christ, that Philip is one of the people sent out to proclaim this message to the ends of the earth. And we see there in verse 6, it says they paid attention to not only what he said, but what they saw, these signs that he did. So he's not just trying to gather an audience by doing these signs, it's confirming the message that what he says is true. And we see this in Jesus' ministry and many others. So Philip is proclaiming this message of the Christ, confirming this message, but we have to ask the question, what is this message? It says he was preaching the word and proclaiming Christ. That's what he's doing. <laughs> it's pretty simple. He's proclaiming Christ. He's proclaiming his life, his death, his resurrection, his active obedience for sinners, his passive obedience, suffering the death that they deserve, and rising again to new life for sinners. And if you turn, if you look in um, verse twelve of chapter eight, it says that Philip. As he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. So we see that this message is the good news about the kingdom of God. And when people believe the message, they were baptized, men and women. So this is what the message, this is what Philip is doing. And you might say, okay, Kindle, nothing revolutionary there, but who is he preaching to? I think that's the real question and the heart of this passage today is who is he proclaiming this message to? And the answer is the Samaritans. No one gasped there. (laughs) You're supposed to gasp. You're supposed to say, the Samaritans. (laughs) What's so special about that? Why is this a big deal, right? Is this just another town outside of Jerusalem? Or is there redemptive historical importance to this message going to Samaria, Samaria, to the Samaritans? Well... Many of us are familiar with the Samaritans, right? Maybe the good Samaritan is a story you've heard before. It's this parable that Jesus tells about who is your neighbor, right? They say, Jesus tells who is our neighbor, because he tells them to love their neighbors. And he picks the starkest contrast that he can think of in that day, which would have been Jews and Samaritans. There's a Jew that is beaten up on the side of the road, and the religious elite leave him there. But who helps him? It's the Samaritan. And this would have been a starch contrast to these people because Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They did not like each other. And if we know our Old Testament, this would have made even more sense, right? In the Old Testament, this is very clear why Jews and Samaritans did not like each other. If we know the Old Testament, Abraham, right? He was given a people and a land. Moses gave laws to those people. You remember the 12 tribes are gathered together. David is in, in the Davidic covenant is given a kingdom, and he's the king over these twelve tribes. But shortly after that, his son Solomon falls away. He goes after other gods, and he has many wives, and the kingdom is divided. So there's these two tribes, these two kingdoms, rather. There's the northern kingdom of Israel, with the capital of Samaria, and there's the southern kingdom of Israel. Judah, with the capital of Jerusalem. So after Solomon, the kingdom is divided. There's these two kingdoms. And eventually, the northern kingdom, Israel, with the capital of Samaria, is destroyed. Assyria's come in, they do not follow the Lord, and they're wiped out. So because these people worshipped other gods, they went after other gods, they married other people, they did not listen to the Lord. And so this northern kingdom, Samaria, is wiped out. Of Israel is wiped out and only Judah is left, right? And so there's this hatred, right? Because they are not following God. The Samaritans made their own temple at Mount Gerizim. They did all this stuff. They were not true Israelites, true Jews, because they did not worship at the true temple at Mount Zion. And so there was this deep hatred. And so this message going to Samaria is a big deal. (laughs) It's not just another town in another area. It's a big deal. And if you want to turn with me to Hosea chapter one, Hosea is a minor prophet. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but just listen to the prophet Hosea speaking to Israel or Samaria, these people. He basically tells Hosea to marry a prostitute and to have children with her. And he says, name the children, no mercy for I will have no more mercy on your house. And he tells him to name the next child, not my people, for you will not be my people. And so God, through the prophet Hosea, is saying radical things to this northern kingdom that has left God, that has gone and worshipped other gods. And so there's this deep hatred and this deep set um, anonymity between these two. And so we see, even in the prophet Hosea, this promise of reconciliation. In verse 10 of chapter 1 of Hosea, he says, yet... The number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand and the sea. And in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah, southern kingdom, and the children of Israel, the northern kingdom, shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. So there's this promise of restoration that these two will be made one. And we see this in Jesus' ministry, right? If You guys remember John 4, Jesus at the well. Who does he go to? A Samaritan woman, right? A Samaritan woman. And John even fills us in. <laughs> he has a little commentary. He says, Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. So he's, again, exaggerating this point that Jew and Samaritan are not together but Christ goes to this Samaritan woman and they have this debate about living water and she's confused. She's, he thinks, She thinks he's talking about real water and there's all this confusion. And then he starts to point out her sin. He says, you've had five husbands and the man you're with now is not your husband. And she doesn't like this and so she sort of changes the subject. And you could go there if you wanted to, but in John 4, Jesus... Um, Says to her, he follows along with her. He says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So even in Jesus' ministry, He is pointing this Samaritan woman not to the mountain in Samaria, not to the mountain in Jerusalem, but to God, worshiping in spirit and in truth. So there's this foreshadowed reconciliation that's happening. There's much more we could say about that, but the seed is sort of planted. And so when we get to Philip, he is proclaiming the gospel to the Samaritans. We can see the full picture of what God has been doing throughout history. That even though these kingdoms were separated, that God is now bringing his gospel to these people that were once alienated, that God's unfolding plan of redemption is taking place. And if we remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, what does Jesus say to the apostles? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we see Christ's plan taking place. It's amazing. Exactly what Christ said is coming to pass And the Samaritans are believing the gospel, being baptized, and being welcomed into the church. And we see finally this brings great joy to the people. If you see there in verse 8, it says that the whole city rejoiced with great joy. We see that the good news of the gospel brings great joy to these people, that the spirit has come, the gospel has come, and they can rejoice. So this is Acts chapter 8, 1 through 8. So before we sort of end our time, let's take a step back and let's try to apply this passage to our lives and try to understand how we can glean from this. So three things this morning. The first is, as Christians, it is okay to grieve. As Christians, it's okay to grieve. We see here that there was great lamentation made over the death of Stephen. And I think a lot of times in our lives, especially in kind of Christian culture, there can be a lot of Positive thinking and that has its place, but we can tend to not allow grieving. And we see that even in the midst of great suffering, the apostles and the church grieve. And so, not just for persecution, but maybe we've lost a loved one, or maybe we've lost, um, you know, a friendship or a relationship or whatever those things are. We see here an example of how to grieve well, but not to grieve without hope. We see Paul later say. That we should be those with hope, because we know that even though we've lost a loved one, that if they are in Christ, they might be absent from the body, but present with the Lord. So we can take hope and assurance in that. So it's okay to grieve as Christians. And then secondly, we'll see that the hand of the Lord cannot be stopped. (laughs) That even in the face of persecution, death, suffering, that God's plan of redemption is going to take place, that nothing can stop it. That even Satan, who's behind this persecution, who's trying to stomp out this message of the gospel, is only spreading it. (laughs) He's only spreading it. And even, you can think about the crucifixion, right? Satan thinks he has Christ cornered. That is the very thing that will save sinners, is the death of Christ. So we see here that God's hand cannot be stopped. And this beautiful picture of redemptive history unfolding that the, that the Old Testament even promised this redemption, this gospel going out to all peoples, and we see it come to fulfillment. And so finally, we can say, behold the mystery of Christ. Behold the mystery of Christ. This is the language that Paul uses that was hidden for ages but has now been revealed. This mystery of Christ, that there is one people of God and that Christ is the great prophet, priest, and king. If you look at your um, bulletin on our confession of faith this morning, it says He's our chief prophet, our great high priest, and our eternal king. Jesus is the better prophet, the better priest, the better king who came to unify His people around His life, death, and resurrection and that by faith in Him alone as we read in our um, assurance of pardon, that there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, that all are one by faith in Christ. That's how we're united. That's what unites us. Whatever tribe, tongue, and nation, background, skin color, anything, we are all one by, in Christ by faith. And so um, it can be easy to doubt God's promises, right? It can be easy to doubt God's promises in our lives. How can you do this? How can you allow this persecution? And if we put ourselves in um, the time of this great proclamation, the people might have been even tempted to doubt God's promises to Israel, right? How are you going to bring Jew and Gentile together, Samaritan and Jew? How are you going to bring these people that hated one another together? And I'll just close with reading... Ezekiel 37. This is after the the vision of the dry bones. Some of us might be familiar with this. I was just blown away by this this morning. This is in the Old Testament. This is Ezekiel promising this unification of Jew, Samaritan, and Gentile. And listen to this. He basically tells Ezekiel to grab a stick and to write Judah on that stick. And he tells him to grab another stick and write Israel on that stick. So think Northern and Southern Kingdom. And he said, join them one to another into one stick that they may become one in your hand. And then the people will say, will you tell us what you mean by this? (laughs) And the Lord says, behold, I am about to take the stick of Israel and the stick of Judah and join them and make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. then listen to these words. And I will make them one nation and one king shall be king over them. And there shall no longer be two nations divided they shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and detestable things but i will save them from their backsliding and i will cleanse them and i will be their people and they will be my god i will be their god think of hosea there then listen to this my servant david shall be king over them and they shall have one shepherd i will make a covenant of peace an everlasting covenant and i will multiply them and i will set them in my sanctuary my dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. <laughs> then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. We can see Christ in these passages that he is the great king, the David, who sits on the throne, who rules and reigns, who welcomes all who would believe to his kingdom that there is peace that there's one nation under not, sorry, not one nation under God, but one nation. but we, as God's people, are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, under, under Christ the Great King. So may we be found in Him this morning. let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this morning, where we come together um, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And behold this great mystery of Christ who was promised in the Old Testament and now has come to full fruit that by the proclamation of the Gospel, by Christ's life, death, and resurrection, that Jew, Samaritan, Gentile, Greek, slave, free, man, woman, are made one in Christ by faith. May we trust in that Gospel this morning and in no other. In Your name we pray. Amen. You guys want to stand with me? We'll sing... Psalm 23, which is song number seven on your handout. We'll sing Psalm 23 to the tune of Amazing Grace. So just think Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. sing with me the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, from Romans chapter 16. And I didn't even think about it, but this is Paul (laughs) who persecuted the church but is now proclaiming the mystery of Christ. Hear this benediction. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Grace and peace as you go from here.